Hey, this is Mark Justice, and welcome back to Between the Lines. Today we've got a great show. We've got Peter Baker, who's a multi-genre writer. Um, and uh, Peter, I want to welcome you to uh, Between the Lines. I'm very happy to be here today. Good. I'm happy to uh, finally meet you. We've been trying to get this for a few weeks, and I've been sick for the last, uh, what's this, day, day 30. So I think I'm pretty much over it now. Um, yeah, it was a protracted upper respiratory infection, which was just not not happy but um so let, let's piggyback on that because i've been recording this whole time so let's let's talk a little bit about that it jumps the gun a little bit but we were talking about role-playing games and how your experience with rpgs got you into writing a novel you're you're writing a fantasy novel uh fantasy ish so uh, way back in way back in like 2000 i think uh my friends and i is when we first started playing uh dungeons and dragons uh, and we lived in this small city um, on the outskirts of Tampa called Plant City, Florida, which is in fact the winter strawberry capital of the world. Oh, uh, nice. At one point, uh, at one point, they had a lot of snake handling Pentecostal churches Excellent. back in the day. Nice. So, so uh, on a lot of nights, we would go to our local Denny's, and we would uh, we would we would drink coffee and play Dungeons and Dragons. And then eventually, right? That was that was lots of fun. Always loved playing D anD D with uh, with the guys on the weekends and stuff like that. And at some point, we discovered another RPG, which I actually like better for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's called Vampire the Masquerade. Yes, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, you are not. It's always like hit or miss on whether people are familiar with it or not because mm -hmm. it's uh, it's almost got like a cult following. Even though at one point they did have a, a TV show based on it called uh, kindred the embrace which um could have been a good show and it had you know mark reinhagen who created the game had an executive producing credit on it but it was also an aaron spelling show so one of the nicknames i heard for it was transylvania 90210 yes that would make perfect sense and then right. uh because you're talking about the live action are you talking about the live action vampire game where you walk around and you you solve uh, resolve conflict with it's basically paper scissors rock or are you talking about the tabletop rpg the tabletop rpg okay because there is a live action version of that it was i believe it was yeah. called mind's eye theater i think that's what they call it okay yeah because i i went up back in the day when i was teaching i was a faculty advisor for quite a few of the student groups and one of them was the the uh the live action role-playing group you know the larp group and they were playing vampire one night and um, they called it Vampire the Masquerade. And uh, so I was just observing and how they did things. I'm like, well, that's, that's a fascinating way to play. Because I had always, my experience was like yours, starting with tabletop, you know, back in the 80s, though, when I started playing D&D. But, um, but anyway, so, so you are playing this vampire game, the companion piece to the werewolf, the apocalypse, too, right? They're both from the same company, if I remember. They were all there's, there's a lot of games from the same company, but Vampire was the first game that came out, and then at some point they did uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, mm -hmm. um, they did a uh, Hunter the Hunter the Reckoning, I think it was called, and uh, okay. a couple of other companion games, and they were all really good. And the emphasis was on great storytelling, so it would even tell you, it would even tell you in the rules, it says, uh, you know you could break some of these if it makes the story better. And I always appreciated that. And sure. um, so I think when I was working at Blockbuster, it had to have been when I was working at Blockbuster because uh, that was 2006 when I started there. Uh, 
an old friend of mine and I and our manager started a vampire, the masquerade game. And uh, so I made this guy, his name was Daniel. I made him in the game. He was a hunter. And uh, in the story, he had a daughter named Bethany. And um, we had a lot of good moments uh, there and didn't really explore a lot with the the kid, Bethany. So when the, the game fizzled out at some point uh, and I got tired of writing fitness content and fitness books, I was like, well, maybe I should uh, finally get on that and write a write a story about Bethany and then and, and see what happens. So late 2019, I think it was around October, I started. And um, then I didn't finish it for a bit until the lockdowns happened. Then I was like, well, I can't go to the gym now. I can't really do anything else. Might as well finish that. And then so I did. And then uh, went through the steps of querying it to a lot of people and getting rejected. Uh, I also didn't know what the hell I was doing because the first draft was, uh, I mean, everybody says it's awful, but like it was super bad. And uh, and then I got a lot of no's and I was like, I should probably just self-publish this for a lot of reasons. And then, uh, so, you know, I went through the steps of getting a book cover, getting editors and things like that. And uh, it's definitely a lot better than it was. And uh, so, yeah, I got to write a, a story about this character that I, created but didn't do anything with in uh this old tabletop game had to change some of the things around too because you know i don't want to get uh sued by anybody right that's important yeah i remember um doing something similar to you i, I had a an ongoing i think it was like a and d campaign with some friends that lasted like four years and i remember recording the entire campaign and was going to write a novel you know a series of novels from it you know i don't know why i didn't um i should have because it was a pretty fun campaign uh and then i did the same thing with like a warhammer thing but uh no i know i, I like that i like that concept because storytelling I mean, it is the fundamentals of storytelling if you're playing more than just hack and slash and that that forces you to develop the world it forces you to develop characters it forces you to develop plot and um so because i you know i didn't before today my questions are going to be geared more toward your stuff that i've read on your website um but i I'd like that we got fiction that we can talk about too so i want to make sure to add add into those so but i'm going to go back uh, a little bit i always like to start with kind of broad questions and, and kind of get some of your background so um who are some of your favorite writers I think the I think the thing that started it was when I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I think in 2002 or three. And uh, it was one of the first books that I audibly laughed at uh, as I was reading it. And I said, well, this is uh, fun. I could I could probably do this because uh, I'm irreverent like this Hunter S. Thompson character is. And then I started doing entertainment reviews and CD reviews for the school newspaper at the University of South Florida. And uh, I was like, wow, I could also uh, get paid for this, too. And then I got a job as a journalist in a local small newspaper. Uh, do they have creative loafing where you are? Or is that strictly a Tampa thing? I, I wanna, Well, I don't know if they have creative loafing. Um, I, I know when I was in high school, I took advanced gym, which is probably pretty close. So, yeah. <laughs> we played a lot of dodgeball and a lot of volleyball and a lot well, our, our teacher was also the basketball coach, so it gave him time to work on basketball plays. So it was just basically, here, you have an hour to 
to, to goof around, you know, so. Fantastic. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, so I, so, I, so I did all that and then uh, eventually I started a fitness blog and then eventually I started working in that industry and writing more and focusing on that with uh, in the industry, but I always like to write other stuff too. So mm -hmm. up until, up until 2019, uh, basically everything was some sort of nonfiction mm. that I had done. So even as a child, you weren't really much into reading. Like did you have favorite books as when you were growing up? Uh, I did read a lot as a, as a kid. I, I read a clockwork orange when I was in third grade. <laughs> That's that's an intense book for an eight-year-old. I mean, yeah, they just let the... me. Plant City had one bookstore. Uh, they don't have any now, but at the time they had one. And uh, yeah, I just uh, called them up and ordered it, and no questions asked. I was able to buy it. That nice. Was, that was, wow. So yeah, I'd always uh, I'd always read, and then uh, you know when I worked at a call center in 2011, I uh, in between calls I would read a lot as well. So I've always been uh, pretty prolific, and then. When, when the COVID happened and the lockdowns, uh, I didn't think at first that it changed my life a lot, but I noticed like, I was like, wow, man, I'm having like a lot of trouble reading. Turns out this whole time, like my whole life, I had uh, undiagnosed ADHD and autism. And I was okay. like, oh, that explains, uh, that explains why I, I can't read. It also explains oh, why yeah. I felt like a lazy piece of shit and was like, man, why am I so lazy? I just, I want to do stuff, but I'm just sitting there not. Yeah. Where, um, so you were diagnosed with both of those. Did they tell you where you were at on the spectrum, uh, the autism spectrum? Uh, if I remember correctly, I was not surprised to get the autism diagnosis. It was the ADHD that was surprising. Okay. The, is it more like on the Asperger's kind of? Is that, is that a word that you might have heard? Uh, yeah, they, do, they don't use it anymore. But if they did, that's, uh, that's where I would be. Okay. <laughs> and what year was this again, this diagnosis? This was this past November. Oh, this past November. Oh, okay. I, I, I've missed that the first time through. So now, did that kind of give you a new like, understanding of who you are as a person? Uh, the autism was not a surprise, but it did make some things from back in the day make sense that I had trouble with that I had also addressed in therapy just because I knew it was a good idea to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, but, uh, so with the ADHD, I wasn't really familiar with executive dysfunction and what that looked like, which is why I thought I was just a lazy piece of shit because I couldn't read. And, uh, I, I couldn't, I struggled very hard with getting my rewrites done. Uh, I could not work at a, at an ex, I couldn't work for an extended period of time. So it was just taken forever for me to get it uh you know after the developmental edit it was taken forever for me to get it back to her for her second pass over it and um but then once i got the diagnosis uh and they started talking about you know those high-powered adhd amphetamines that they give you uh when i started trying that i was like wow this is this is nice so i finished all the rewrites i needed to do in two days on christmas day and the day after this past year because I had the house to myself because my partner was uh, gone to see family. And then I was able to, uh, you know, like watch movies and read again. So I've mm -hmm. been reading uh, a ton lately, which has been fantastic. It's well, that nice is to great. Back to where I'm used to. Yeah. I, I think reading and writing are, are in, 
intrinsic to one another. You know, they're inextricable. Um, but for a uh, while, I could not make it to write anything longer than like an Instagram caption. Yeah. Well, that I mean, it makes perfect sense. Um, and I'm I'm happy that you're that you've got this diagnosis and, and yeah, that you've that you're that it's being managed to the point where you seem like you're relaxed now. You're happy with it and productive in a way that you were worried that you couldn't be before. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Um, well, wonderful. That's got to be a big relief. And, yeah. You know, um, and now you've taken on the task of writing this novel, which is, which is pretty, I mean, a novel writing is far different because I was, I was on your website and reading through, you know, your essays and your blogs and, and your ramblings, as you call them, your philosophy and things like that. And, um, you know, a lot about fitness, but you also have a lot about popular culture. So, I mean, you write essays about popular culture, about your experiences as a musician and death metal band, you know, you you got some satire in there, fitness coaching and, and some erotica. That was quite a, quite a diverse array of, of content. Um, what got you into writing essays? Probably ego a little bit because uh, well, the thing is, uh, there's a running meme on the internet now that uh, if you were gifted as a kid, like you took the gifted test at school, like you probably got the autism and ADHD diagnosis later in life, which is true because I, I did get into these classes. And one of the, um, one of the, the, the downsides, I think, to that is, is when you have the public school system, especially here in the United States, the way that it is, uh, you get a mixed bag of people who are basically running the show for a variety of reasons. Some, some teachers teach special education because they, like, kind of like you mentioned, I don't know if your teacher was this way, they teach special education because they think it's going to be easy, but they really want to coach the high school football team or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they also have to teach, so they satisfy that requirement with it. And then maybe yet another special education teacher is really passionate about it and actually gives a shit and wants to do it. But um, all things considered, I I did pretty well with what I had growing up in Florida, which is not known for its public education, but you you get a lot of people and you get all these smart kids who, you know, and they always tell them, Oh, you got so much potential, but uh, they don't really. And, you know, you can't always fault them for it because Sometimes they just don't know, but they don't give you any guidance on where to direct that potential or more importantly, how to direct that potential. Right. So then, then you get uh, instances where, and, and maybe this is tied to it, like when I thought I was a lazy piece of shit because of uh, the ADHD that I didn't know about. I'm like, man, I have all this potential, but I'm failing at it. And I feel mm-hmm. like shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you have that. So I didn't really have direction i did have a supportive single dad who would let me play guitar whatever i wanted uh and pick up all these varied interests and not discourage me from it uh and then with the the non-fiction writing i found out that i was good at it and sometimes it made people laugh and so i kind of just kept doing it plus also knowing that and i can get paid sometimes that was really nice yeah getting paid for what you do is always helpful um kind of going back to your earlier comment, it made sense because <coughs> I was one of those kids in the, you know, advanced or, you know, gifted classes when I was in like grade school and, and middle school. 
and what was like an advanced English class and things like that. And I was getting B's and I'm, you know, I made those, so I made the merit roll or whatever it was. And my, my, I remember my principal calling me into the office and saying, why aren't you getting A's? I'm like, what? You know, it just maybe made me feel like, well, I don't know, but I didn't have that. There wasn't that sense of support structure. Like you had mentioned, because I was thinking my own school system was like, yeah, we were in this advanced class, but you know, I, I didn't see any difference between what I was learning and what my friends were learning and who weren't in the advance. It's like, I don't know. I don't feel any smarter. I don't, you know, whatever this is supposed to mean. Um, so I, I just remember that, that incident. It's like, why aren't you getting A's? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I, get, I didn't have an answer. I was like, you know, uh, I don't know, eight, 13 or something. I'm like, what do you want from me? I'm, I'm, I don't know. One, one of my favorite things in the school is when I was a, a troubled middle schooler, I would get into ISS and I loved it because I didn't have to deal with the slowness or fastness of everybody else. Mm-hmm. But also I could finish all the nonsense I had to do for class. And then I could sit around and read the rest of the time. And pretty much nobody would bother me unless I showed, uh, I mean, all, cause all I had to do was show them the receipts that I did whatever assigned work I had. And so that was, that was actually pretty great. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's good. Well, going back into your to your essay writing, you know, and your blogging. So, what is it about blogging or essay, the essay form, that you find satisfying as a writer? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. But blogging, I knew I had to do so I can get a following. That was uh, the extent of researching I did on how to like market myself. I was like, well, I have to do this so I can get following so people can see what I have to say so I can get more fitness clients and they'll buy my shit and et cetera, et cetera. And um, I don't know, arguing is fun. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I what I liked about your essays um, and is that there, there's quite a lot of satire in there and then i re- even read the, you know the one where you talked about s- censoring satire and that's mm-hmm. where i read where you that you were autistic and then you gave the reasons for why you thought because you were having you struggled with these very you know these kinds of satirical or or um you know nonsensical expressions like it's raining cats and dogs i think is the one that you you had mentioned and uh, oh okay that that makes that makes perfect sense so what makes a good satire to you as a writer? Like, cause you, you, you write quite a lot and, and it's, it's good satire. So how do you know, <laughs> excuse me. Still hanging on. Um, what makes a good satire to you? Fun fact about that one. Um, somebody actually said I was a fascist for advocating for that because they didn't get it, which is understandable. Um, yeah. I, I think overall, it just has to be so absurd while making sense at the same time for it to be good. You can't really top modest proposal. Right. Yes. I, I remember reading that for the first time. I, I must have been middle school, you know, maybe sixth grade or something. And the shock and horror that some of the students had, like, and that was my first exposure to satire. You know, it took me a while to get it because it is so well done. You don't, you don't obviously see the satirical nature of it. And you're also pretty young too, like 11 years old. Like what, what is satire, you know? But um, 
Yeah, I get that. I like that you cause a visceral reaction in people. I mean, every writer wants that, right? Yeah, and I uh, and I've always done sarcasm, which was probably because of the autism, and I didn't know it because it was one of the things that uh, the doctor noted on my evaluation. Will say that likes to use sarcasm. I thought that's just what people do. They're just mm-hmm. always sarcastic all the time, and right. with with the way my voice sounds, uh, I can do this deadpan delivery and say something that's like completely absurd, and it'll make people wonder, like if you're right. serious or not. And yes hopefully they will probe and facilitate a bigger discussion which is always a, a good thing uh in my opinion i i i like people to um be like is this motherfucker serious and then we could we could talk about it right i i appreciate deadpan humor i think it goes back to uh batman when i was a kid watching the the adam west batman those lines are delivered so seriously but they're hysterical um, and then followed up with the like police squad and naked gun and airplane, you know, Leslie Nielsen's deadpan, all the humor is deadpan, but it's hysterical. And so I, I adopted that kind of deadpan humor. You can see the posters behind me. Those are two of my movies. Yeah, That's just my style. Of when I write humor, like I like it when people say funny things and they don't know they're being funny. It's just, right. they're just, they're just, they're just delivering it. So I, I totally appreciate that. And when people don't know if you're being funny or not, that's sometimes even more delicious because you know you're fucking with them. And they're like, what the hell is going on? And that that's kind of part of your own sense of enjoyment that you take from like, come on, man, you got to figure when this I, out. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I did security work, uh, checking IDs as a bouncer, uh, people would always be like, my birthday's right there. And I'd say, yes, I know how to read and um but then but then like i realized sometimes they would think i'm being an asshole so i would have to explain it's like we're not just looking for your birthday like you know when you look at an id of somebody that's going into a bar especially if it's a high traffic uh like nightclub you're looking at their height their hair color their eye color and their birthday to make sure most of it matches up people could dye their hair people can gain or lose weight or whatever but like you know there's a couple things that probably going to be pretty static that you're also looking for besides their birthday sure right exactly um i i it's so funny we have we have a lot of common similarities one summer when i was between semesters in college i i was a bouncer at a it was a teen nightclub so i mean it was it was it was only there for the summer but um, and there was no, never any problems. I mean, there's a bunch of 14 year olds running around. The most you're going to get is like, be called a dick or something, you know, but it was never like at a real nightclub. I just thought, Hey, you're going to pay me this much money to like, make sure these 14 year olds don't punch each other. Okay. You know, so it was not, it was technically a bouncer, but I didn't really do anything. Um, another thing I liked about your, uh, essays is, is how you discuss elements of popular culture. Um, I have a master's degree in popular culture, so I love I love studying this stuff. So, what about what aspects of popular culture do you do you most like to write about? I'm a big movie and book fan, but I, I think that came from sort of my degree because I got a degree in religion, right? Oh, and um, fascinating. And uh, one of my professors, he uh, very inspiring guy. I, he, that's also probably where I realized like nonfiction writing especially academic writing, which like the fitness books kind of veer towards that. I was like, man, it doesn't have to suck. 
even though a lot of it does suck. Because uh, this guy, Del Deshant, was one of the best writers I'd ever read, academic or otherwise. And I was like, wow, it's really accessible. It's really engaging. Uh, and it's overall fantastic writing. And I really love it. Uh, but um, shit, I forgot where I was going with that. Um, oh, he, uh, he, did, um, he did a lot of stuff on religion and pop culture and was the guy who first i think introduced me to the writings of philip k dick because he talked oh, nice. about that in his class mm-hmm. because philip k dick was a self-described gnostic not agnostic gnostic mm-hmm. with, a, with a gn right right and uh that was one of the areas that i focused on in religious studies was gnosticism and so okay the, the parallels to sci-fi work are there especially right. in about philip k dick sure i i love his i love his fiction um because he really focuses on the human condition, especially like in in uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, it's, it's one of his many great books. But he, but he focuses on the interface between technology and human, but really focusing on what is it to be a human being? What does it mean? And um, yeah, I remember uh, you know reading that. And 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 the one thing I, I mean, I love Blade Runner. It's I think it's a, a fairly faithful version of of the, the essence of the story, but they really do capture that. You know, here are these replicants going, you know, I mean, how you can't forget Rucker Howard's, Howard's like tear jerking speech at the end, um, the things that he's seen. And, you know, they just want more time. They want to meet their maker. They want to go, why can't we live longer? What, why did you make us? All those kind of intrinsic questions we have uh, to our humanity. Um, and I'm fascinated that you that you have a degree in religious religious studies or is it theology or um... it's religious studies uh theology you have to believe so i was able to pick and choose what i wanted to uh, nice. study okay and so so then in, during during those classes or any class where he taught we talked about like uh fandoms as i don't think i don't think in 2007 we used the word fandom but mm-hmm. like we talked about comic cons and uh sports conventions and star trek conventions and stuff like that and how functionally they were similar to a lot of things that uh religion serves uh as a function to sure yeah and uh so i thought that was kind of neat and um yeah i think it just helps to to be aware of things especially like for a time i taught guitar and piano for about four years and uh you know there was a lot of kids coming in so like I think a lot of people get out of touch with the youth because uh, they they lose track of these things and view them as unimportant. And, um, you know, that's not good. That's not how you relate to people. That's why we have uh, in the U.S. a gerontocracy who's so out of touch with literally everybody. Like, I mean, if you just go back and watch that, whenever they whenever they fucking have Mark Zuckerberg on there and uh, a bunch of these old guys were like not they didn't know anything about essentially how the internet worked and it was right. hilarious it was also sad because you know like it affects us and all but sure uh, objectively it's it's fucking hilarious because these old cottagers are out of touch with basically everything that's going on in their lives yeah right no i i get that i get that um yeah that, that makes that makes that makes sense um, and it's like I always told people too, uh, especially some of the the fitness colleagues. I always told them one, you can have a personality and get clients, and you don't have to sound like a dork all the goddamn time. But 
also never publicly admit your ineptitude because like a bunch of times like these people they're like i don't understand tiktok or i don't understand well back then it was i, I don't understand snapchat i don't right. understand this it's like you might as well just be saying get off my lawn right it's like yeah j- just google it and figure out what the hell a tiktok is or us or, right or it just yeah and, and, right exactly uh, i yeah i i totally get it i i am uh i don't ever see myself being on tiktok uh, but it's just not my thing um i can appreciate people who do it well but i'm more of the you know facebook and instagram are perfectly fine and i i'm happy that when instagram finally went to where you could access it through your pc cuz you know i just got my smartphone like a couple years ago cuz i just didn't want one um so i i get that but now it's like okay now I can put in video and everything's on my computer anyway, which is what, you know, this is, this is where I do my work. So it, it's just another platform for me. And then so I'm, I, I get, it. I'm completely happy. I'm not, I'm a Luddite in the sense where I just don't have to be an early adopter. And if something works, like I'm okay with my old, uh, like Sega Saturn, you know, and Dreamcast. I don't, I don't yeah, have and, to have like a PlayStation five, you know? So, and, uh, and I, I just got on TikTok, uh, and apparently they love autism there. And, uh, so, I mean, it's, I've made a couple things on there and I plan on doing more, but, uh, from a marketing standpoint, you know, it's good to at least get a feel for where your audience might be hanging out virtually. That's true. Yeah. Well, you know, I, um, I, I get that as a multi-genre writer, you know, I've written in several different genres and nonfiction as well. And there's one genre that outsells them all. You know, it's my cozy mystery, even though I'm not a, I haven't never read cozy mystery until I wrote one, but that book outsells all the other ones. But my number two seller is my nonfiction book, which is called toxic. And it, it really talks about why I'm an apostate. You know, I grew up in the fundamentalist Christian household and, and church. And I, I know the Bible better than most Christians. And so it was just about, here's all the parts in the Bible that made me throw my faith away. All my problems with things that you don't going to hear about in church because they don't want to talk about them because they know they're troubling. And, um, but I have an academic background too. So it was very academically sound in that regard. It was, but it was also very healing. So I understand that you find your audience and for you, that's really great that you're connecting with your autism and, and your writing and finding that audience. That's, that's really important. Um, do you, do you think, or do you see now that you've gotten this diagnosis, do you see how um, being autistic has influenced your writing style or your writing choices at all? Good question. I'm not sure about uh, writing. It does influence how I interact with people. And uh, I I did have uh, a beta reader who is autistic as well. Uh, She asked me, she says, uh, is Bethany the main character? Is she autistic? I was like, she can be now. So I, so, you know, like now I'm going to make a choice to maybe play up some of those aspects of it. But that's, that's about all I can consciously think of. Uh, off the top of my head as to how it's influenced the writing. Because yeah, we always bring some of ourselves into, into characters. Not all, every character is, is us, but it, you know, that's the first thing you're ever going to hear when you go into a creative writing class is you write what you know. And, and oftentimes we have to write from that experience in some way, shape or form. And that's how we connect to it as a writer. And those feelings are genuine. Those emotions are genuine. 
so that's how you the audience connects with it as well so i would yeah. imagine you know if you're creating this character you are writing from your knowledge and your experience as a person with autism and, and your character is going to reflect that you know so yeah and uh so yeah i was surprised that uh she actually has that and another beta reader asked if uh she was some sort of neurodivergent. I was like, yeah, I guess she is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Other, other ways of, of finding uh, an audience, you know, and, and, and representation, which is really important, you know, being able to read someone who you identify with, like I can identify with this character. That's important, you know, in, in every aspect of our lives, um, every, every aspect, whether it's, uh, fiction or movies we like to go to see someone we can identify with and if there's no one we can identify with it's really hard to t uh, to latch on you know to to whatever it is that, that piece of entertainment you know yeah 100 percent. yeah um let's talk i want to talk a little bit about you know that you've got you've got these essays you, you're working on a fantasy-ish novel are there any other genres that you think now that the kind of the gates are open are there any other genres that you'd like to write in i mean i'm probably going to do something that's uh absurdist and funny at some point just because uh i like the coen brothers nice but also when i was doing the theater back in the day i was in uh i think we read waiting for godot which was fantastic but i was in a play called the bald soprano by eugenie Inesco. okay which was a ridiculously absurd play. And I always just uh, like that type of stuff uh, just because of how so ridiculous everything that goes on is, but also how like every character thinks it's like, you know, a big deal. Like, like in Fargo, the whole movie could have been solved if the guy would have taken Steve Buscemi's advice. And, you know, when he's like, well, why don't you ask your fucking wife? You know, that, that would have been it. That, that would have been the entire movie, but no, instead, William H. Macy has to concoct this elaborate kidnapping scheme that ultimately fucks him in the end because he winds up getting busted, too. Right. It's like a series of missteps, you know, and that is based on reality. It's, you just see, yeah, just how awful things can spiral out of, con, you know, out of control. Um, yeah, and and the same uh, another one of my favorite of theirs is uh, "Burn After Reading" because uh, they pretty much sum it up in the end. He's like, "What did you burn anything?" And the guy's like, "I don't know, probably not." <laughs> and then uh, and then J.K. Simmons is like, oh, "What a clusterfuck!" Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great cast. Um, yeah, and he's wonderful. J.K. Simmons is wonderful in everything he does. Um, he's by far the best J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, have you seen Whiplash, where he plays the music teacher? I have not. Um, that is an intense movie. That is really intense. And um, I don't want to spoil anything other than it's intense. But I remember that he was saying, because he always plays these really intense characters. Um, and he was doing the, the post that he junket about this movie. And he would say, before takes, he would go to the you know the actor who's playing the drummer. And he would tell him, like, look, I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to say all these mean things, but I'm just pretending, you know. So the kid wouldn't, like, feel the psychological damage of this really intense conflict. Um, so, yeah, if you're, if you're in a mood for that kind of movie, it, it, it is a, uh, it's, it's a harrowing movie in, in some ways. Um, but, but truly great performances. 
Oh, okay. I would like to talk with uh, you a little bit about your writing process. So what part of the writing process do you like the most? Well, when I can actually get something down on paper, that's pretty nice. Okay. Uh, there, I, I don't really, uh, I, it's hard to say if I have a, a process or not, because, you know, back home, I got a, a dog and he's old. So like, by the time I get settled into a groove, oh, he needs to go out or he needs something or he's being a shithead because he's cantankerous and old and he's a beagle. Uh, so usually that that's kind of how it is. But like when I can get him to sleep, I'll usually just sit on the couch and turn off the TV and I can actually do some things. Uh, and that's pretty good. Or if I'm feeling really productive, like I was the other week, uh, did that all day. My partner came home from somewhere. It was on a Saturday. And so she hung out with the dog and I went to a bar and had a glass of wine and did some more stuff. And that was, uh, that was pretty good. Nice. So is there an aspect to the, the process that you liked the least? I'd probably use a better computer, but I mean, it's not bad. It's better than the one I used to have. So the fitness, the first fitness book I did, wrote most of that on my phone because my Dell laptop was so terrible. Okay. Uh, it, like it needed to be plugged in to stay charged like yeah. at all. Otherwise you unplug it and then it would just shut off because it was always at zero charge. Uh, and I got it in 2011 use. So it was old and uh, it was just pretty, pretty haggard overall. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, the, the equipment's always uh, the thing, like the thing. Could you buy a new battery for it? Cause I have a laptop that's 16 years old. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I just well, replaced the battery and I'm like, Oh, I mean, it still takes a good, five minutes to like boot up like once you hit power an easy five minutes before like everything's ready to go but at least i can hold a charge now but it did i i did get the new battery and that's when that started happening so it's uh, uh but i i do uh i do prefer the mac because it goes with the iphone uh as well and i'm not a tech savvy guy so those are pretty idiot proof to me and i appreciate that aspect of it sure i get it uh, when did you first come to realize what your writer voice was? You know, the, the voices used to to describe the way one writer will say thing versus say something versus the way another writer says something. So, is there any time as you were writing that you kind of figured out what your voice was? I'd like to think I'm still figuring that out, but uh, it's weird. Um, I want to say maybe the autism did play a part in that because when when you're not dealing with people you're not doing what they call the masking uh was when you're writing you can actually be fully yourself and you can say whatever you want uh so i think in that way maybe it helped i'm kind of just speculating there because i mm -hmm. i i've never really thought about how i develop my voice but that's probably because i've been doing it for so long mm-hmm so it's actually a good question. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I do think that probably helped with it. And um, just uh, taking that sarcasm that I use every day in my life and uh, just throwing it out there, it just kind of lent itself to what I, whatever I wanted to say. 
Yeah, and your posts are they're all well written and they're, and they're knowledgeable. Um, they're they're full of opinion, but that's what they're supposed to be. You know, here's my take on Star Wars, or here's this and that. And here's why this movie's good, or whatever. You know, but they're still they're articulate and they're 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 thoughtful. And where you know, I've read blogs that were neither. You know, so uh, you want you want an opinion to be validly supported by you know a good constructive logical argument, which is my I guess if I had a, a pet cause now for everybody, it would be learn the basics of formal logic because what's so important. I mean, I'm not, I, I took it so I can get a math credit in college, but I was like, wow, this is a really good class. Uh, I can understand why philosophy majors have to take it based on what they do. But uh, when you have that and you realize what validity is, you can get rid of a lot of noise. Like I can look at a meme now and, you know, most people laugh at them. They don't think about them, but I think about everything probably too much, uh, depending on who you ask. Uh, so I can look at a meme and say, well, this doesn't make sense because if you think about it for more than two seconds, it falls apart. This is stupid. And then I move on with life. Mm -hmm. uh, and the worst thing you can do is try to engage somebody in a comment section by telling them that their meme is not valid because it neglects so many aspects of a bigger picture then they'll just say oh it's a joke and then you have right. to say well jokes have to be funny and then it's a whole big thing yeah and that's yeah. the other thing too for me about humor is uh you can't he i mean yeah some things are funny but if you think about them for two seconds it, they become less funny because they're not grounded in any kind of logic it doesn't matter if the statement's true or not it can still be a valid argument and that's what matters and validity is what helps people think. And when people stop thinking, that's that's the downfall of all of us. Yes, I would agree 100% on that one. It's like it's back, before, back before Dave Chappelle got, uh, you know, became an old guy yelling about how he doesn't understand trans people and how he hates them and stuff. Um, and I know somebody will probably hear that and say, well, he doesn't hate him. He's just saying this, but yeah, well, what the fuck ever. But back in the day when... Uh, Dave Chappelle was actually far funnier than he is now because he wasn't as bitter and wasn't afraid to evolve with the times. He did this joke um, about how, like, uh, you know, talking about women dressing up like uh, sluts or whatever and getting called a slut and getting mad about it. And then the analogy he made was uh, somebody dressing up like a police officer and somebody going up to him for help. And then he says, Oh, I don't know why you would think that I'm only dressed like a police officer, but if you think about it for more than two seconds, it falls apart because that's a felony. Right. So nobody in the right mind would dress up as a police officer, like in a highly accurate way because it's a felony. And uh, yeah, so like things like that make it fall apart. He's just making the analogy of dress. And it, yeah. it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you know, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I, I totally get that. Um, this question is probably already, already answered. I think it, it already has, but do you, uh, do you do any research for your writing? And, and if so, what kinds of research? Oh gosh, that, uh, that depends. Uh, so for the nonfiction fitness stuff, I did read a lot of scientific papers, um, on nutrition and food and stuff like that to, uh, make sure. Plus, uh, it was co-written with a guy who's got a PhD in nutrition. So that was pretty sound uh, research uh, based on, on that. And uh, I'm actually pretty proud of that fact because it's, it's unfortunate and 
it's it's unfortunate on two levels because not a lot of people know how to read a research paper or to validate whether it's worth a shit or not, uh, which is actually where religious studies helped me out because if we're comparing two different copies of uh, the Gospel of Luke, you have to assess, you know, which one's older, which one uh, was written for what purpose, linguistic things, and then if you compare those, uh, um, I forget how they classify the comparison. Basically, when you redacted criticism, I think, or some shit they call it, where you compare it side by side uh, and stuff like that, and you have to realize, and then when you read like commentaries on them, you have to evaluate whether you know, like, what's what's their what's the goal here? Like, what were they yeah. trying to do? What's their motive? The, yeah. So, like, if you look at the Book of Matthew, the way it's structured, it was kind of like a a mini Torah. Yeah. So it was written in five sections. Uh, Jesus was speaking on the mountain, just like Moses was on the mountain. It made a lot of you know literary parallels there and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And because then, of his audience, that's you know the audience said whoever wrote the book of Matthew was writing for the Jewish audience. But Matthew, I mean, is ninety yeah. percent of Mark. Mark's the oldest gospel, at least the oldest that they know. And then Matthew just copies Mark for the most yeah. part. You know, yeah, exactly. That's and then right. Luke that's was right. a bunch of interviews. I mean, he, he walked around interviewing people. Remember what Jesus said like forty years ago? Do you, do you remember that? You know, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and, and see, so you would, uh, yeah, that's right. You had the fundamentalist background, so you would have uh, eventually come into that understanding, right? right. Yeah, he was writing, they were writing Matthew to a Jewish community, so obviously mm-hmm. you're going to make it appeal to a Jewish audience. Right. They're going to understand the those of- concepts, and they're going to understand those tropes, and they're going to understand those that imagery and symbolism, and it's going to be it's going to hit, hit that message home for them in a way that, that yeah, the Gentile was, audience right? wouldn't, right? Yeah, and then if you look at the book of John, uh, pretty different. Very different. Uh, very different. Uh, some would say that's the beginning of Christian anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, it could be argued, right? Yeah, I, I think others would say, yeah, that, that could be true. Yeah, well, you know, we didn't need Mel Gibson to deliver that message. Um, it's been around for a couple thousand years. Well, you know, there's actually a very good book on that subject uh, called Constantine's Sword, and it talks about the history of christian anti-semitism starting with emperor constantine oh well he did uh he did he did adopt that and force everyone to become christians yeah and, and uh yeah and it goes back into all those conspiracies that have evolved into basically what we have in in QAnon today and uh you know going back to bubonic plague and poisoning the well which was basically blaming the uh, jews for the plague interesting interesting oh so, yeah like well, that's probably also the rise of the Gnostics in the fourth century and the fifth century. But a lot of those Gnostic gospels that were discarded, and a lot of those Gnostic readings, and that we were only discovered again, like when the when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. But then we realize all the politics that went into the the, the Council of Nicaea, where they were deciding what books to put in, what not to put in. You know, I mean, you really see God fall apart in these in these areas because, like, how do some ask? sects of christianity have more books than the other and and their god is mysteriously silent like eh, i don't care believe what you want you know and uh one of the last things i did before i moved to seattle was i went to go to a funeral for a professor of mine called dr strange that was his actual name fantastic yeah professor james f strange and uh he was a christian he was a uh, he actually lived the life he would do sit-ins in the 60s uh you know with black civil rights marchers and stuff like that and um Stuff that he Jesus would have done. 
because Jesus would have he was he was a people's people's champion, right? He yeah, would have been like there. the rock. Yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. He, no, he he did he did those things, and he also looks like a cross between Santa Claus and Indiana Jones, and he's a biblical archaeologist. But all the wow. things that he knows, yeah, no, he's he's there's a there's an auto there's a biography in here somewhere. He should have a biography, but uh, he. So, you know, he, he did all these things and, uh, you know, he knows the same things about the, the biblical contradictions and why they were written. And he, he could also construct computer models of antiquity, but, uh, you know, he was still faithful and he still lived his life uh, as a Christian. Yeah. But he also he also took all this information and he believes that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was more metaphorical than anything. Interesting. So that's what fascinates me is how knowing all these contradictions and knowing all this stuff, how can you still have faith in this as a God, you know, or, or this deity? Um, and that, that's what fascinates me. You know, like, I think if more Christians knew about how their Bible was put together, there would be fewer Christians, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, we already have, uh, at least in the U.S. anyway. I mean, uh, we've been on a steady decline of religiosity over the years yeah i think people are just fed up with it but i don't know if it's coming from uh the, you know the generations they just don't feel like the need for religion you know and it's like the old guys like me who you know had it stuffed down their throat for 40 years and they're finally saying you know I, i've taken enough and i'm going to tell you why i don't believe anymore um and uh so but uh, no, i i totally agree with you on that that's that's fascinating I think a guy like Dr. Strange would probably say like, uh, you know, that's uh, all these things are man-made things to, to worry about. And that's separate from my actual faith in, in Jesus Christ. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what actually circling back to the research question, but yeah, that's what gave me, but not a lot of people know how to evaluate research papers like that, which uh, is pretty sad and makes it difficult, which is why we succumb to, a lot of, uh, especially in the, especially in the fitness industry, a lot of uh, chicanery and charlatans and, and, and things like that. And um, so, yeah, so that was, uh, that was pretty uh, extensive uh, there. And then for the, um, for the, the recent articles I did, the, the nonfiction stuff, I did one, did one, I did a satire thing about arming children instead right. of teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was and then you had to, I saw in part two where you had to tell people like look I was being satirical if you couldn't get it yeah well I, there there are I I assume that there are some people who would actually believe that because it was hard to think of how ridiculous can I get to where even these guys won't well how can I get these evangelicals to think I'm crazy if they beat this uh, and it was very yeah. hard to come up with that and uh, some of them will probably think that's Wow, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's arm the kids. Well, you know, as, as someone who grew up around guns, I mean, it was in my house. Uh, my dad was a hunter and, and, and a sportsman. You know, he had, a, he had rifles in his truck. Um, they were always loaded. Um, I grew up shooting, you know, as a kid and grew up with a great respect for weaponry. So, you know, not every kid has that, that, that upbringing. Um, you know, I'm not going to lay the blame solely on, there's no, I don't think there's any one, one factor. I'm not going to say it's just bad video games. It's just, oh God, there's things like that. Multifaceted, which is also yes, something. That's part, yes, that it's a, it is. It's, it's, so there's, there's no easy solution to this, but get back, back to your satire. Yeah, it is. You know, there are, I guess some people, 
who just don't and maybe that's part of the whole like pc movement like we just we take everything so damn seriously we don't know how to have fun we don't know how to understand satire because the best satire it doesn't come out and says look i'm satirical you know it it it, um and that's that's what i appreciated about those essays is that it was written so seriously very much like you had mentioned earlier uh, a modest proposal you know it was reminiscent of that for me yeah, and then for those, uh, you know, there is uh, some heavy research involved. I did have to look into, and I even mentioned it explicitly. I was like, "Look, the uh, the these these states have the most gun ownership, most gun violence, and most religiosity." I mean, that's those are those were uh, you know those are actual factual statistics. Like, and they're all red states and. You know, and then you could take that. And that was part of the other goal, too, is to realize, like, yeah, you could take these things and kind of make them say what you want if you're adept. Yeah, so that's the tricky thing with statistics, you know. Um, I mean, obviously, something is going on in our culture. Uh, but, it, you know, what that is, you know, because there are millions upon millions of gun owners who have never had a problem in their lives, you know. And I, for one, I, I no matter what it was i mean, like you, you know when i was a kid uh, fireworks were banned in ohio because a couple of kids you know had the hand injuries one halloween you know fourth of july they blew up their hands and so fireworks were summarily banned which i always thought to be unfair for people like like we've got thousands of tens of thousands of people who are kind of have no problem at all with fireworks why are you punishing me so i i disagree i don't like that kind of taking a stance for people who are responsible um, but I mean, there's never going to be a time when you have a Roman candle that you're not going to point that at your friend, right? And they're going to yeah. point it back, at you. or bottle rockets. We would throw bottle rockets, right? Because if we're going to apply that logic, where well, some people got hurt by using these, we're going to restrict them. Then we shouldn't have um, any kind of fast food. We shouldn't have any kind of sugar. We shouldn't have automobiles or motorcycles or airplanes. I mean. It, it can become us, you know, talking about satire and a slippery slope. It's like, you know, we should get rid of cars because people die in cars every year. I mean, how far we we take it? But I agree. There's there's an issue. Some there's a a very complex problem, and and uh, complex problems require complex solutions, I and mean, we have to understand it first, you know. And uh, yeah. but satire takes it that quick route, you know, and and like, yeah, here's how to solve it. Um, which uh, which is what I like in your writing, though. So, um, and, and then for the fiction, the research is usually like based on what the character needs. So like I learned how a little bit about uh, how detectives detect, and uh, you know some police procedure because uh, there are elements of that in the the, the fiction as well. And uh, so you know I look around and ask around and stuff like that. Okay. That's good. And, and being an academic, I mean, you, you certainly are comfortable with research, you know, it's just, you know, it shouldn't, it's not, uh, and I've interviewed writers who don't do any research at all, yeah. you know, cause they're writing fantasy. So they just make it up. But um, I, uh, I think research is important, you know, to some things, cause you want to know what you're talking about, but you don't want it to come off as a history lesson. You know, you want to, you want to have the details that it have to be on, it have to be right. But, you know, um, you don't want to bludgeon someone about the head with it. Um, yeah, exactly. 
Okay, uh, I'm going to go back into to some of my 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 winding up questions here. Um, we got about eight or ten more to ask. Um, what is your favorite time of day to write, or is there one? Uh, I prefer if I could do it in the evening time, but usually it's more like the afternoon. You find yourself like most creative in that in that time of day. Yeah, I just I just like the nighttime, but uh, you know because of the dog and stuff like that, it's uh, it's always uh, the noon time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when when you're writing, do you listen to music um, or have any any kind of distractions, or do you do you prefer like silence other than uh, your dog? It's uh, it, it's pretty weird now because before the ADHD meds, I did love background noise, and one of the uh, the background noises that I had when doing the novel was I would just put the movie Logan on, on a loop mm -hmm. uh, and, and just, just keep going. But now since the ADHD meds, uh, I need complete silence. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Never, never did, never did write to, uh, to music too often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got a playlist like a, on my computer. It's like six or 7,000 songs, but it has to be music. That's not too intrusive. It can't have any singing, any vocals. You know, um, I like soundtracks. Like the soundtrack to Alien is uh, maybe an odd choice, but it's really stark and kind of ambient and, and more of just backgroundy. But I, I prefer that because it gives my part of my brain something to think about so I can focus everything else on the creativity. You know, it's like when I used to play drums, I would, I would like enjoy playing a, chewing a piece of gum. And it's like, I needed that piece of gum so that I could do everything else. You know, it was a weird, weird kind of thing, but uh, no, I, I totally get it. Um, how often do you write? Uh, I try to do something every day, but I'm, I'm good if I get four days a weekend. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, you know, there's something to consistency, you know, but life comes in and we can't always be as consistent as we want for sure, you know. Um, you've, your stuff has been published, you know, not in print. Am I, unless I haven't seen a book, but it's, it's been printed online, correct? There's uh there's been some ghostwriting things that came out in print, uh, and the fitness books, uh, you can get physical copies of as well. Okay. Well, that's great. So tell me how you felt seeing your work in print for the first time. Uh, I mean, it was pretty good. Yeah, it's kind it's kind of neat. And then uh, when people tell you they like it, that's, uh, that's even better. Yeah, that, that's a uniquely satisfying experience, especially if people you don't know, you know, because um, you don't have to question like whether they're saying something to be nice to you or not, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> have you ever read your own work like a year or more after you published it? And, and if so, what was that experience like for you? I, I try not to. I don't. I, I don't even like going back hardly and listening or watching things that I've been on. Uh, for one, I think I sound funny. My voice does, uh, like my audible voice. Uh, but I'm afraid if I look back on writing, and I, I'm going to look at it and be like, "Man, this was terrible." I've done it a little bit uh, to to go back and edit some things from the past, but I know there's going to be a time soon. As soon as I get it back from the line editors and I go in and do the things and then I send it to the copy editor, I'm going to have to read it and make sure there's no errors. I'm yeah. not looking for that at all. They'll, they'll help. The editor should help with that. 
you know, the copy editing, especially. Um, yeah, but, but it, you know, yeah. you got to do that final proofread. I still want to make sure. sure I don't have any continuity errors because, man, I can't keep track of that's hard to keep track of the continuity errors. So I'm going to guess you're a pantser, not a plotter. Not necessarily, but sometimes things just change because they have to change. And it's hard to keep track of, did I, did I, did I refer to this thing before? Do I refer mm-hmm. to it later? Mm-hmm. Now I got to keep it in line. Sure. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, right. I, yeah, that, make, that makes sense. You almost have to kind of like take notes, keep notes for yourself. Where, where was this at? Especially if something changes. But no, I, I get that. It is a weird experience reading. And I generally don't read myself again once it's out. Except I'm working on a series. And I was working on book two in the series. And I had to read the first book again. Just because I had, it had been a couple of years. I'd written three other books in the, in the, in the meantime. And I had forgotten so much of what had happened. So no, I understand the apprehension there. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, and uh, there there are some good uh, there are some good editors who can pick up on that. And I'm like, man, you should probably just you should probably just make a concordance for book series because you're you're very good at this. Which is funny because I, I think it was Stephen King who was talking about how like uh, people on the internet keep a better record of whatever he's done for his Dark Tower than he <laughs> did. Yeah, well, he's a, he's a complete pantser, which really stuns me. Um, I mean, he's been doing it for so long. Of course, he's going to be able to, he can write whatever he wants. Uh, and he, I'm not sure if he was always that way. And if that's the case, even even more so, because I'm not a pantser. Um, I have to plot. And maybe it's because I, the academic I, in me is showing, but I I cannot write a whole novel from scratch with characters and story arcs. And I mean, I have to plan that shit out, you know? I, I made the mistake of pantsing it. And I think that's why my first draft was awful because it wasn't something I was good at. So then the developmental editor said, hey, you need to do this. And that, of course, I was like, well, how am I going to get this to happen? And that elicited changes that happened, like Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes adding characters that weren't there before who will play bigger parts in subsequent books and and things like that. And uh, and then I found this uh, thing called the snowflake method, which really appeals to the way I like to do things, because I always like taking a small thing and zooming out to the bigger picture and that's essentially what that is so i've started doing other books in this series based on on that and uh you know i know things are going to change but it does make the uh, entire process significantly easier interesting i might have come across that once before but i'll have to check into it i'm a lister <laughs> you know i i i, I'm a, I brainstorm i list and then once I start developing all the ideas, then I then I outline, you know, then I then I draft and revise. Um, so it's uh, so basically you start off with like uh, your elevator pitch, right? And then uh, you expand into a paragraph, and then you expand that paragraph into uh, a couple pages, uh, and you basically end each page each paragraph on that multi-page analysis uh, on, you know, basically like a like a hook or a cliffhanger to lead it into the next thing. And I think that's pretty cool. And then it also has you, uh, and then it also has you doing uh, character profiles, which I think is really freaking helpful. Okay. Do you use any kind of online writing uh, helps with that? Like Babisco or uh, Scrivener or anything like that? 
Uh, I have pro writing aid. I'm not sure how I feel about it yet, but mostly I just use a, a Google document. Okay. Yeah, I keep folders, characters, and then make Word documents for each one. But these I, initial ones that I did, uh, these initial ways of uh, plotting these subsequent books, I, I hand wrote. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a book where I keep all my notes. Like sometimes that's my ideas. If I don't write it down, I'll forget about it. You know, sometimes I'll have to sit for a couple of years until I can write it out. Uh, no, that's that's good. That's good. So, uh, if you could put into words, what is your writer fantasy? I would like to have a show on Amazon Prime based off this first piece of fiction that I write. Nice. That'd be awesome. There's some good that way stuff Netflix, uh, that way Netflix won't cancel it after two seasons. Yeah, that's uh, and someone else will have to pick it up. I also that. really love what they're doing with uh, the boys on there. Yeah, I'm uh, two. I've been doling it out season three. You know, like I'm trying to just watch one a week because otherwise I could binge the whole damn series at, at once just sit there and watch it because it's so well, good so far only three episodes are out on season three i think they are yeah. doing them weekly which is delightful yeah i'm uh i'm uh, i just finished season episode number two uh i think last night and uh so no i love this season what they're doing with it oh it's um, fantastic no, yeah it's uh it's a it's a it's a good very satirical show in a lot of ways as well um and a lot of the people involved in it behind the scenes, like, you know, the writers and showrunners and stuff, they had their hands in uh, Supernatural. Oh, okay. Interesting. And uh, you'll notice some crossover cast members. Jensen Ackles comes in this season, as does uh, Jim Beaver, who plays uh, who played Bobby Singer in Supernatural. So he's uh, he's been in The Boys as well. Okay. I've never watched Supernatural, but I'm I'm aware of it. So. Yeah, so so my elevator pitch to people offhand for beta readers is, yeah, this this book is like supernatural, but far gayer and with no fridging. Excellent. There you go. That's fantastic. Um, what advice would you give for anyone who wants to write? Oh God, that's a that's a good question. Um, stay off the internet and especially stay away from writing groups on the internet and why what what um why stay away from these groups uh man there's a lot of majoring in the minors there like people are worried about what software they use fun fact mick foley who used to wrestle in the wwe sock yeah yeah and before mankind right was it mankind is that it was that his wrestling that was one of his names yeah and before that he was in wcw was cactus jack Oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he's, he's been around. He is also a New York Times bestselling author. Yeah. So when they said, hey, let's do your autobiography, he was working with a ghostwriter. And then he would go back and read what he had told the ghostwriter. And he's like, that's not how this happened. That's not, what, that's not even what I said. So he fired the ghostwriter and he hand wrote his first book uh, while he was going on tour. Like he hand wrote the whole goddamn thing. It's like 800 wow. pages. Wow. And it's a New York Times bestseller, and it's it's surprisingly pretty good. And um, you know, he did that, and uh, you know, I <laughs> and I, I notice in a lot of these groups, like uh, a lot of people are afraid to do anything, uh, or they're worried about like dumb shit, like what software they're going to use to write. When you literally have 
a pen and a paper you can use. Sure. You even, you even have Google documents. You have notepads on your phones that you can use. Uh, and that's, I, you know, every time I do an Instagram caption, that starts on the, the iPhone notepad. Yeah. I can't imagine. I know it's a really popular thing in Japan. I can't imagine trying to write a book on my phone. You know, I mean, I just use word. It's it's simple as that. I format it right there. It's not, it's not a big deal. Um, you know, but I have to have a, a keyboard, you know, and it's an ergonomic keyboard because that just feels so, so much. Once I got a nerve one, I'm like, I'm never going to a flat keyboard again. Um, but no, no, I, I get it. I mean, we all have our things, how we, how we like to do it. I, I can't imagine trying to write on a phone, you know, but if that's your thing, you know, I mean, I used to write longhand back in the day and then I would transcribe. Um, and it wasn't until I became like, a, I was writing articles for a, the college newspaper where I was teaching, but I started just composing at the keyboard and that changed everything. It's like, Oh, I never want to go back to writing by hand. It's just so it's slow. Uh, it's funny. You're talking about that. There's an indie author out there. Uh, She's really good, and her work uh, is reminiscent but not derivative of Stephen King. Her name's Brittany Johnson, and um, she uh, writes her stuff on a typewriter before transcribing it onto a computer. Interesting. Which is a whole other level of impressive because, like, a typewriter just feels so weirdly different than any keyboard I've ever used. Yeah. I mean, even the electric ones, you know. Oh, yeah. 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 I can. um, That's interesting. Huh. I do imagine it probably provides some sort of uh, auditory uh, pleasantness uh, about it because of the the typewriter keys clacking. I can't speak yeah. to that in her case, but I imagine like that I could see myself being into if I ever were to use a typewriter. Mm-hmm. Or if you get an obsessive fan, you can crack them over the head with it, right. like Paul Sheldon did in Misery. Yeah, yeah. There is something about the the sound, and then you know that that return that ding and you know in the in the zip the return and all that because that's how i my very first papers in school that we had to type were on an old-fashioned typewriter and the very first novel i tried to uh write well i wrote it by hand and then my mom transcribed it because i didn't know how to type at the time that was probably the my most functional class i ever took uh probably in ninth grade was was typing you know, probably that thing that says paid off more dividends than I can know what know what to do with. Um, well, we talked a little bit about, you know, you, your current work in progress. And just to remind the reader, this is a fantasy-ish fantasy story, horror. fantasy horror based on the vampire uh, game that you were playing and, and a character you created in this world, right? Is Do you have any other works in progress right now that, that um, you're able to talk about? There is a short story to go along with that, and there, uh, I've started a prequel and a sequel to it as well. Nice. You, do you like the, the ability to work on multiple projects at the same time? Do you find that uh, helpful to kind of get the bigger arc, or is it a distraction in and of itself? It is helpful because like a lot of it now, because the novel's essentially done, I don't foresee adding new scenes or anything like that any you know for this one um but yeah like because you know just waiting for the editing to come back and all that stuff so like it, it helps to have something else to do in the meantime and then there's probably going to be more satirical essays coming out too because those happen usually just when i think of them 
and I think a lot. So like, there, there's probably more coming. There's a lot to, to satire out there. That's well, sure. I'll probably, I think the next one might be on how uh the title maybe is something like yes abortion is killing but think of it as self-defense because our maternal mortality rate in the u.s is the highest in the world is it actually yeah it is it's fucking sad that's that's horrifying um i mean that's the kind of thing you expect from a third world kind of country you know you hear about this we're supposed to be first world and have uh have a handle on that shit you know yeah, we're like a gilded third world country in a lot of ways. Interesting. Huh. Well, I look forward to reading that one. And my last question, Peter, where can we find your writing? Uh, I got my medium site. Well, you can get all of this stuff on uh, Instagram. Uh, my username is Peter D. Baker. That's D as in David. Uh, even though it doesn't actually stand for David, but um, so yeah, Peter D Baker, all one word. That's my TikTok. That's my Twitter, which I never use. Uh, that's my Instagram, which has got the links to my website uh, and uh, my medium site where I post all the satire stuff. Excellent. And that the medium is, is like an online writing community. Is that, it's like a blog, pla- it's like a blog hosting platform, the way a uh, blogger was back in the day. Okay. Yeah, I I had never seen it before when I clicked on Medium. I'm like, oh, okay, because I've seen other writers use. Um, there's a, a couple other writing platforms I don't remember offhand, but for it's, people yeah, to write find, novels and things. Yeah, you can find a lot of good stuff on Medium. It's mostly I notice for uh, short fiction and essays and stuff like that. But the good part is it's it's free to use. Uh, and you can get paid for some of your stuff, uh, but I don't like putting that stuff there behind a paywall. So I, I typically don't. Uh, I also don't think I want to, I, I haven't had the motivation to download Stripe. So I haven't done that yet either for that reason. But, uh, and it's also very, you know, like if you're like me and you don't like doing website things, uh, it's also very readable. So you don't have to worry about formatting it to make it look aesthetic. It already covers it for you. And, uh, it's also, uh, in general, it's a good way to practice, you know, especially if, if anybody wants to start writing, like get a medium site and throw it out there and then share it on the internet to your friends while you're actively staying away from Facebook writing groups and similar things. I've, um, there are a few Facebook groups that I, I see once in a while but i'm not i'm not uh i'm I'm active in a few but and some have been have practical advice and others not so much but i i find much a much more supportive community through instagram like when i got on there and many other writers yeah there's something about these writers um they they're just very supportive of one another i find the community to be so different you know and diverse and uh, so no, I'm I, I'm pleased. I mean, that's where we met one another through I think Instagram that way. So yeah, um, no, that's that's good. Um, Peter, I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with me today and and talk about writing and your process. I, I it has been really lovely to get to know you and and uh, to read your work. And I really hope our listeners get a chance to to check out your stuff too. And and I, I definitely look forward to seeing when your novel comes out. 
I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure. I'm going to do my commercial and we're going to get out of here. Awesome. You've been watching and listening to Between the Lines. You can find us at unsaneradio.com. You can listen to full episodes or download to your device. You can watch us on our YouTube page, Between the Lines Podcasts. If you're watching, that's where you're at. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And you can also find us on the Hotel Talk channel on Roku. If you know someone who'd like our show, tell them about us. If you're a writer and would like to join me for a chat, email me at betweenthelines54 at yahoo.com. That's betweenthelines54 at yahoo.com. And Peter, here's my cheesy outro line. See you next time, Between the Lines.